Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. If you're jonesing for more dead mom content after this episode, you can listen to all of season one if you have not already, or you can go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash deadmomcast to listen to episode extras. This episode, I interviewed my buddy and comedian, Steve Slaga. I've known Steve for a few years. We volunteered together with young storytellers and his dry wit and already very dark sense of humor was my favorite part of those afternoons. Steve lost his mom just two and a half years ago. Growing up, my mom was um, very, uh, she procrastinated all the time. Um, I, I, I feel bad for starting with that, but like my earliest memories with my mom and I think my brother and sister would agree are things like um, she always made our Halloween costumes, but ne- they were never done before trick-or-treating <laughs> time. Like it was, you know, maybe you got to wear it for the costume parade at school that day, but then it had to be rushed home to like finished before trick-or-treating. Uh, I remember her always being late to pick us up from work because I worked before I could drive. And I, I feel awful saying that those are like my strongest memories <laughs> of childhood because I know how angry that would make her, that that's how I'm remembering her now. But also it makes me laugh to, th- to think that that's how I, something I remember about her. But um, I guess, yeah, she always procrastinated. And yeah, the Halloween costumes were always late, but also she was making the Halloween costumes and she was coming to pick me up from work. So um there was still, you know, so much effort. So there's effort. Yeah, there is a lot of there's a lot of love there. And also, I think the reason I go to those things first now is because those are the things I so strongly see in myself that I've taken (laughs) from my mom is laziness and procrastination. So that's probably why they're the first things that come to my mind. But she was very, very crafty, not just Halloween costumes. She was always making something. Uh, She had eight brothers and sisters. So I have like over 20 cousins and all the cousins have kids. And every cousin and every cousin's kid has like a blanket or socks or a hat that my mom made. Uh, All of her friends all had, all had, you know, crap that my mom made for them. (laughs) Um, No, it wasn't crap. It was, uh, it was usually like cross stitching and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I didn't realize early on, it never dawned on me how artistic she was or how much of that had gone that I had picked up. I always kind of just assumed like I'm the middle child. I don't fit into this family. Mom's this dad's that. And I'm the artistic one, but then going back and reading her journals and uh, journals, she wrote for me, not just like private diaries. <laughs> that I, I saw I need to read, uh, but seeing how funny she was in her writing and all of the kind of crafts she did. And so like, obviously that's, what influenced me as a creative person. And that wasn't until probably after losing her that I realized this connection we had had of wanting to do things for other people and and create and and make people laugh. And that's all, that's all from her. Yeah. And I think probably just like society, when you think about like arts and crafts, like 
because they're kind of like feminine they're not really seen as like creative they're seen as like well you do that like like women yeah. have to do that you know yeah it's maybe not seen as creative you've got to do it actually is yeah you've got to do something with your time yeah. while the men are are barbecuing and watching sports <laughs> yeah. might as well put birds on a hat uh yeah i i have going back into my house uh in michigan and like looking in my old bedroom just seeing all the things the um pictures she had bought and framed or uh, even here in los angeles one year she came out to visit and when i was like 10 uh, i got a puzzle for Christmas. It was like Looney Tunes all over the New York City skyline. And I never made it. I was really into Looney Tunes as a kid. And I saw it at the store when they had the Warner Brothers store at the mall. Mm -hmm. It was right next to the Disney store. And I really wanted that puzzle. And I got it for Christmas and I never made it. And then years later, I was in Los Angeles and I brought it out and was like, I'm going to do this puzzle. I'm going to I'm going to make this puzzle finally. And now it's 2011. And it's, uh, you know, Sylvester and Tweety are, are tightrope walking across the Twin Towers, so it's a little outdated, but uh, I brought it, and still, it sat in my apartment. I never made it, and then one year, my mom and dad came out, and I was just like, yeah, you know, do whatever you want. Keep yourself busy. I had to go to work, and when I came back. My dad had finished the puzzle, and my mom had gone to the store and bought puzzle glue and a frame and hung it, so without you know, any asking from me, I came back from work and my puzzle was assembled, glued and hanging in my living room. It was the only art I had. Uh, so she was always wanted to to give and provide and not even just to the kids, but to all of her friends. It was always important that people in her life knew that she was available to help, whether it was, you know, drive them somewhere or make their baby slippers. In fifth grade, I did band because I really wanted to. Just It seemed so cool to play an instrument and to be in a class just playing an instrument. And I really wanted to do it. So fifth grade band was fun. Sixth grade, it was fine. I hated it in seventh and eighth grade. But my mom had this dream. She said she always wanted to be a mom walking along with the marching band in the parade, which... I mean, it was so easy to make her proud just by doing that. So I ended up staying in band only so that she could be a mom marching <laughs> with the band in the Memorial Day parade. And then at the end of that year, I, when I was quitting and said, you know, I only did this because I wanted you to be able to march in the parade. And then she was like crying, like, oh, you were miserable this whole year. You didn't have to do this. And I was like, yes, I did. I did. I gave you that. So, um, I think even by eighth grade, I was sticking around like, oh, I've just got to do one high school year of marching band. But it was, it was miserable. I hated every second of it. So there's probably some resentment there that she didn't deserve at the time. But hey, she got to, she got to, she and, to and specifically, she got to march. Yeah. <laughs> specifically, she like she wanted to be able to like, because you have to hold your instrument. So she liked squeezing the water bottle into like, into like the drummer's mouth and stuff like that. Like she really liked feeling... <laughs> feeling important. I guess we were pretty close if I was willing to do marching band for her. We probably got closer the farther away I moved because first I went to Western Michigan, which was uh, on the other side of the state. So like two hours away. And uh, sometimes she would come out for the afternoon. And I remember uh, then I moved to Florida 
and I did the Disney college program and then Chicago and then LA and she would always cry. And every time I would be home, she would be, she'd cry when I left, but then she'd also be like, no, go. I want you to do what you want to be doing. But I feel like every time I got farther and farther from home, we ended up getting closer just because um, you know, technology was changing and I could text her and call all the time. So uh, yeah, she came down to visit me in Florida a few times. She was the reason I went to Chicago because I was at Western Michigan just because you go to college after high school. That's what you do. And I went to Western Michigan for a year and a half and I told my mom, I don't really like this. I think I want to write. I think I might want to work in like TV or film or something like that. And she's the one that told me about Columbia College uh, in Chicago. And so that's where I ended up transferring to. It felt like it was supposed to be the opposite. I felt like I was supposed to go to my parents and say, I want to go to Columbia College, Chicago. And my mom's supposed to be like, "That what? No, yeah. that's that's ludicrous. That's insane. Get a real degree and then move to L.A., but move there with some sort of actual degree and not this not this pretend one. She drove me out and we took a tour and we stayed at the Travel Lodge on Michigan Avenue that old scary one and yep. uh and my dad of course was super supportive too but it was definitely my mom who introduced me to that and moving to Chicago kind of put everything into place for moving to LA and then staying in LA so she always was sad when I left but I'd be like you're the one that told me about Chicago <laughs> so my first job in LA I was a office production assistant for a reality show company and we did Project Runway and my mom had like her Project Runway viewing group because this was back and Project Runway was happening. And one day they realized that they didn't have any time lapse footage of, you know, because on, on these reality shows like Project Runway, they'll show a clock go from three o'clock to six o'clock. And then, you know that, oh, it's almost the end of the day. And they realized they didn't get any of that time lapse footage of the clock in New York. So I had to move everything out of an editing bay paint a wall the same color as Parsons in New York, put a clock up and film, just set record on the clock to film time-lapse. And I remember my mom calling me and being like, we all just saw your clock. We all cheered. <laughs> Hope that's all you needed. Hope I don't have to get any more successful than that. No promises. Um, so yeah, she would always, um, she'd always be excited about stuff that was going on in my career. And she likes to, brag about me to all of her friends at her knitting group and stuff like that even you know when they weren't things that were that cool like it was always good it always gave me a perspective because I'd be like mom it's just an audition for a coca-cola commercial that's not exciting and she'd be like but it's an audition for a go you could be in a commercial so yeah she was very she was very supportive I remember I had just gotten a new job that I hated it was a like a production company I was a producer's assistant and they were so awful. And the head manager was just like emotionally abusive. I shared the same. I was on the same floor as her. And people would IM me and be like, oh, is is she in today? Has she come in yet? What's her mood like? Like, that's how she was. And one day she was laying into me, like berating me for not knowing how to create some sort of budget or something, even though I'd worked there for four days. And that was the same day where I got home. I was calling my mom to complain about my job. And she was uh, like, cool, sorry. Um hey, uh, don't worry, but there's something behind my eye. Don't worry, because that was always um, every she never. And I always found out about things later because my brother and sister were in Michigan and, you know, my dad was living at home. So she would always 
hold off on telling me if she could. Like I would always find out things a couple days after I feel because she would always say, I, I just, I, I just want to tell you, but I don't want you to worry. Um, so probably 2000, yeah, eight or nine. And then she had, um, an operation and it was, it was gone. She was cancer free. And then a couple years later, she started acting very strange. We, we thought maybe there were psychological issues. Like my brother and I were convinced that she was having some sort of like nervous meltdown because she was acting so strange. She wasn't herself. She didn't buy us Christmas presents. She didn't really put up the Christmas tree, which were huge things for her. And I was yelling at her when I was home for Christmas because she wouldn't get out of bed or do the things that she normally did. Then we found out that it wasn't like a breakdown or anything. She had a brain tumor. It was because she had adenoid cystic carcinoma. So it had um, started behind her eye and, and spread into her brain or something. I feel like I'm going to have some sort of aunt or sibling or I can already read the texts from my brother about how I'm getting mom's cancer story wrong. So sorry. I see it as, you know emotional um, an emotional timeline more than you know technical technically accurate uh but so she had a brain tumor which was successfully removed it was big it was like the size of an orange i think and i went home for that and it came back again she had uh cancer behind her eyes that they couldn't remove without going blind so that's when i planned a um cruise for her because she always wanted to go to Alaska. She always wanted to go on an Alaskan cruise. And so I did a GoFundMe and um, all my friends were awesome and they came through and they, um, I raised money to take my mom on an Alaskan cruise. And that was July of 2016. But at that time, the whole thing was mom's going to be fine, but eventually she's going to be blind. Like she's going to be fine. The doctor can remove this but they're holding off until they have to do it because she's going to go blind. The trip was difficult. I think I look back on it with rose-colored glasses and try to reframe memories in a way that it was more fun than it actually was just because at that point, her vision was basically gone completely. So she really didn't get to see... Alaska the way I wanted her to the best we could do is I would take pictures on her iPad and then we'd put the iPad like in her face so she could see a glacier or a mountain or something like that so it was very tough I feel if if it had been a week later they never would have gotten her on the plane my sister and my dad were saying that it was really hard to get her to go on this trip but because I had done everything for it um, and, you know, and, and paid for it and done all this for her there, you know, they, she couldn't not go, but I know that it was tough because at that point she was, she basically was blind, but we didn't know the cancer was back. They just thought something was wrong with her eyes because of the treatment or because of all that had happened. She cried a lot. If I knew then what I learned a month later about what was going on, I think I, I would have been completely different, but she um she wasn't happy on the trip. She was very quick to um get defensive or angry or sad about stuff. Like 
one time I gave her a cup of water and she dropped it and, and started crying. And then I started yelling at her because she was crying over a glass of water and who cares about a glass of water. So I was getting angry the first few days that my mom wasn't enjoying this trip and I was getting resentful. Like, can't you just be here now? Can't you just enjoy that you're on a on a an Alaskan cruise and I had worked so hard to get this for you. And so the first few days were pretty hard. And then I stopped trying to do all the things I wanted to do with her. And I just every morning would take her onto the balcony because we I got her a balcony room and I'd give her her iPod with country music and Neil Diamond and her coffee. And she loved that. <laughs> so the first few days when I try to wheel her around or take her off the boat and like go around, that was um, that was rough. But once we kind of agreed like, OK, you know what? It's just going to be it's going to be different than we planned. Then it was uh, then it was better. But just yeah, she got small things would set her off like, you know, getting her the wrong kind of cookie at the buffet and stuff like that. And I had no idea that the cancer was back. So I thought, again, it was some sort of behavioral, psychological kind of issue. But, you know, then I look back and when I go through photos, it's it's a lot easier to remember all the good stuff and all the, all the fun times we had. And when she started to kind of become a little bit more delusional, one time she called me, she was in the front yard while my dad was cutting the grass and she was convinced that she was in Alaska, she, that she was calling me from Juneau. And of course that was very hard to be in Los Angeles hearing your mom in the front yard thinking she's in Alaska. But there was a part of me that was like, well, good, because at least this means she is glad she went to Alaska. Like at least she's remembering Alaska fondly because she was just talking about, I loved that. I loved going on the boat and the elevator and I loved the ice cream. And so it's like, all right, good, good. This is the worst possible thing I could ever go through, but at least she, at least she forgot all the bad parts of Alaska too. Um, yeah. I remember getting her a present. It was a Christmas ornament that said Alaska 2016. And then that was supposed to be a present to give her at Christmas. And then she didn't make it to, um, put that to Christmas 2016. So we still put it on the tree. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of, uh, it wasn't what I thought it would be in terms of, oh, this is going to be, everything's going to be wonderful. We're going to have all these awesome memories. It was, it was tough. It was a, it was a rough trip, but I, I made sure that my sister, um, had a good time. I would always tell her like, I raised this money. My, you know, friends and family paid for me and mom's trip. So you go do anytime you want to go, never feel tied down. Never feel like you can't enjoy this trip that you paid for with your hard-earned money. Go, go on excursions, go do whatever you want. Same, you know, with my dad. And so it was important to me that, you know, my sister and my dad still had a, had a good trip and that I could try to get my mom to lighten up. We went on our Alaskan cruise and a month later was when I was coaching improv. Um, so already you know, primed for, <laughs> Primed for a good time. My brother tried to call me and then I got a text from him saying something about calling my dad. 
And then my, I called my dad and um, I remember he was saying, oh, we went to the doctor and she has another brain tumor and they're not sure they can operate. And it was just such a blur. And all I can remember was being like, don't say, don't say, don't say it. And then he says, so we're talking about hospice and that. I'll always remember where I was, the, the corner of the sidewalk I was on when I heard him say hospice, because up until that point, every time there was bad news, it was followed with, but it's treatable, but it'll be okay. And so at this point, it had been like seven or eight years of, you know, her health being up and down, sometimes good, sometimes not. That phone call that you got, I mean, that was going from like you thinking that she was just going to be losing her vision to be yes. to it being like yes no, even geez. yeah even in alaska we still i just still just thought okay well she went blind sooner than we thought and that's that's what's happening and we still weren't sure nobody knew what if it was the cancer or she had had some sort of eye procedure um so nobody was super certain what was causing the blindness and if it was if this was permanent or if there's more that could be done and so i mean what an awful time to make my mom go on an Alaskan cruise. Like, I think that's something that I struggled with a little bit on, but just the idea of like that she's going through this, that she's lost all of her eyesight and now she's being forced onto an Alaskan cruise. I can't imagine how, I mean, cause I'm just as stubborn as, as she could be. And I would just feel bad for anybody trying to force me <laughs> in that situation onto an airplane to go on a cruise. And then um, it turns out that where her last brain tumor was had it had come back, and the doctors said that it was um, inoperable. I remember a lot of those phone calls vividly, like where I was, like just um, when my dad mentioned hospice, and then I'm thinking like, okay, well does hospice mean what I think hospice means? Or is this the kind of hospice where like two weeks later, it's like, oh, just kidding. Like, you know, cause then I'm hearing stories from other, cause I mentioned hospice and then I've got coworkers that, you know, are, have all their great stories about all the people they know that went to hospice and then got out of hospice. So then there's a lot of false hope. And I remember calling my mom and saying, you know, should I come home? Should I come home right now? I'll come home right now. And she was like, no, don't. Why would you come home right now? And I remember like, breaking down on the phone in front of a 7-Eleven just being like because I want to be there with you this is I don't want to be here while you're while you're sick while you're going through this and she was like no just come home you know come home when you want and don't don't worry about it and that was tough that was that was a really um it's maybe hard to believe but that was a very difficult summer so that was July and then I was working a lot and my job I'm a you know, tour guide at Universal Studios. So my job is to be on. be on. Yeah. And if you're not on in front of the guests on the tour, you're in the break room socializing and still like on in a different way. So it was very draining. I went home in September and that was, they had brought a bed. Hospice had put a hospital bed in my old bedroom. And I remember going home and seeing that bed and being like, this is the bed my mom dies in. This is my the bed my mom dies in in my bedroom. Um, and that was really, really tough. And by then, like I said, she was, it felt like she was 60% there. She would forget if you had a conversation. She'd get 
out of bed and, you know, she fell down the stairs once she, you know, got stuck in the closet behind chairs. Just, she was, it was really hard to see her like that. Um, every so often there'd be some lucid moments, but then other times it'd be like, what are you, you know, like she loved cheeseburgers and milkshakes. And so every day my sister would bring a McDonald's cheeseburger and milkshake, chocolate shake had to be chocolate home from McDonald's. And I remember, I was in the living room writing or something and I heard my mom always using Siri. It was always Siri, call Liz, sell Siri, call Liz, sell. And then she would just be leaving these voice messages. Like, are you coming home soon? Don't forget, get me a cheeseburger and a chocolate shake. And like five times she had called and and left that message. And so that was, you know, I remember waking up at like 3am hearing her cause I was sleeping in the basement and hearing like her, stirring in the in the bedroom because it was right above me and just like being like oh god I hope my sister would please wake someone else up so like I I can't I can't see her like this I can't like please someone else wake up and and put her back to bed leaving in September was when it was kind of like that's it there's no it's also every like last option in terms of um, the specialists in Seattle and anything else that could possibly be done. Any Is there anyone who would operate or anything like that? When I was home in September is when I, it hit me like, that's it. Like, I'm losing my mom. At some point in the near future, um, I'm losing my mom. And I remember um, we dropped her off. My dad was going bowling. So we dropped my mom off at her friend's house who was going to watch her because she couldn't be alone. And then my dad dropped me off at the airport on the way to um, his bowling. And my mom called me. She was like, I didn't know I wasn't going to the airport with you. I'm at Yvonne's. I'm like, I, I know. Yeah, that's why we that's why we said goodbye. And that was really hard. And she said she said something. And then I said, should I move home? I, I can do that. And I'll do that. You know, I can always come back to L.A. one day. Like, I don't want you to feel that I am, you know, on the other side of the country and she said if you want to be in LA then I want you to be in LA and that was really meaningful to me because you know she knew what it would cost for me to uproot my life and actually come back to Michigan and she knew that that was not good for me so she she didn't want me to she wanted she was happy where I was happiest she always said cuz there are a few times over the years with her cancer coming and going where I'd say, should I come back? And she'd always say, no, I want you to be where, where you want to be. One time I picked her up a cheeseburger and shake and I decided to get myself a shake. So I got a vanilla one and I came home and I said, well, I got a chocolate and vanilla. Which one do you want? She's like, chocolate. I want chocolate. And I was like, oh, I kind of wanted chocolate. And it was a test because there was no way you could get her to take a vanilla over a chocolate. I mean, she was like a child in that regard. And she said, okay, fine, I'll take vanilla. And I was like, okay, so they're still, you're still, you're still in there. Do you, like, okay. So that made me feel good. I like to think that if anyone else had wanted the chocolate, she would have said no. That was just special for me. A lot of her like fastest decline happened when I was in when I was in Los Angeles and phone calls, you were, I wasn't really hearing. She wouldn't talk for a long time. I kind of, you know, it started to be where I would just be talking into the phone and she'd just be like holding the phone and not really talking. She wasn't really responding to anyone. My brother would bring my nephews to the house and she wasn't really responsive to her grandkids or anything. So it was very out of character. And 
I think between September and October, something happened where she was just like, okay, I'm like, she was, she was shutting down. And by the time I went home in October of 2016 to go see her in hospice, she was out completely. Um, She was sleeping the whole time. Every so often you could kind of get like one word answers, but very rarely I did get her to say, I love you. And then I did brag to everyone in the room that I got her to say, I love you. And then I did feel awful when I realized that all the people that didn't get her to say, I love you probably. (laughs) Oh, I know she's your sister, but she said it to me. Um, Like maybe my brother and sister didn't mean me to be like, well, she said it to me. I don't feel like we had any sort of official kind of goodbye that she was awake for, that she was present for, which I think that's never been something that's kind of bothered me or that's not really a regret I have. I I think that might have been easier that way. And then after my aunt's wedding, my brother and I went to visit her because my aunt's wedding was just a mile away from the hospice. So very convenient planning. And so afterwards at like 11, it was 24 hour visiting. So it's probably like 11 at night and my brother went and then I wish my sister was there too. Cause we talked to her and, um, that was the first time. Cause my aunts were always very much like, you know, you've got to let her know that it's okay to go. They say that a lot when people are, when people are on their way out is, Oh, have you told her that it's okay? Have you, have you let her know you're, you'll be okay? And I'm like, no, because I won't. And I can't, if your logic is she needs to hear me say, that it's okay for her to go. Well, then if she did hear me say that, she'd know I was lying. So I'm not going to lie. I would joke because my mom, she was a chatty lady and she was very social. She loved to talk shit. Um, something else that I got from her. And, uh, and so I would, you know, people would be like, have you told her that it's okay with you if she passes on? I'm like, look, I mean, she's going to go when she's ready. Like, think about any holiday party that we've ever had on this side of the family. She's the last one there. She's going on her terms. So, like, I can tell her, but I did. I told her five days ago. She's here. So, uh, when my brother and I went, we both, you know, cried and said it was okay to go. And um, we both always say that uh, that would have been a perfect like last last moment but it was like five more days and just exhausting just sitting there like you don't want to go to the hospice it's the last place you want to be but if you're not there like you feel bad so I I would feel bad if I wanted to take an afternoon to just not be there to just not be surrounded by family and you know condolences and news and stress then I'd feel bad like well, my mom's in a hospice bed and I'm just sitting here watching cartoons. No, I have to go. I have to be there. You know, when she had passed on, I remember the next day just being like, I don't have to go to hospice. So. It was a nice hospice. Uh, They sold merch. (laughs) I remember walking out and there's a, display case that like has like fleeces that say Angela hospice. And I'm sure that it goes to like to the hospice. I'm sure like your, your purchase is a donation, but like who's looking to commemorate? Like, is it for employees? Cause, um, but yeah, 
I mean that rare two percent that do that do leave <laughs> that, that, that do get checked in and then check out. They're the ones that are just like, yeah, I want a souvenir. Yeah. So you were there when she passed. I yeah. was not there. But you which, were in Michigan. I was in Michigan. Yeah. We knew like that they kept us updated on her status as she, you know, they call it transitioning into the next out of this life. They had said that her breathing had become more labored and it could be any day now. And I remember all my aunts were there. My brother, my sister-in-law, my nephews, my dad, my sister. We all had pizza in the family visiting room. I said goodbye. And at this point, like, this had been almost two weeks of every night. Again, just the emotional toll of every night being goodbye. Maybe forever. Probably not, because I've done this 13 times now. Um, but so, you know, you have that every time you say goodbye, feeling like this might be the time. And so we had pizza said goodbye, got home probably like an hour later. I was on the couch watching Friends because I couldn't sleep. And um, as soon as the phone rang and I heard my dad, Dan answer, I was already like, I know, I know what's going on. Um, so we got back to hospice. It was a little after midnight. My aunts were there. My aunts were by her side. And I think that, I think it was better that way for her sisters to be there. And then they, you know, prepped her and got everything in order so she looked a little more uh, I don't know less sad <laughs> um, I don't know like what, whatever they do um, before the family comes in to visit I remember just shutting down I, as soon as I walked in and I saw her I couldn't say anything I just froze and sat and just like breathed for probably 10 minutes I just sat in the corner and was just like couldn't I couldn't process it I couldn't look at her I couldn't touch her I didn't have anything to say so I definitely am fine with not being there she's always wanted me to be happy and me to be comfortable so I know that she wouldn't have wanted me to be at her side if I didn't want to be be there like she would have she always felt very guilty about stuff so if she died right next to me she'd be like oh my god I'm I'm sorry I did that. That that would have been that would have been how it was. Because then I did um, the Groundling Sunday Company right after, and that was uh, I wasn't sure if I wanted to defer or if I wanted to just dive right in, come back to LA, and just like full steam ahead to vote myself to to sketch comedy and stuff. And I did do Sunday Company, and people were like, "Oh, I think it's so I think it's so good that you're you've got something to do, that you've got something to focus on." And I'm like, I just. If I didn't, my mom would blame herself. I have no, I have no option. <laughs> this isn't because I feel ready to do it. Exactly, it's my, exactly yes. It's um, I have to because otherwise, you know, she's out there being like, "Oh, he's not doing Sunday Company when he should have." It's my fault. So, in every generation, there is a chosen one. She alone will stand against the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. She is the Slayer. If I sound a little biased in this episode's pop culture segment about the absolute brilliance of the TV show we're about to discuss, it's because I am. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is unequivocally my favorite TV series of all time. The show follows Buffy Summers, a teenage girl who finds out she's a vampire slayer, a responsibility that she didn't ask for. Her life takes on new meaning. She battles evil, saves the world, but really all she wants is what everybody else her age has. 
friends, a prom date, sex with her boyfriend without him turning into his villainous alter ego. You get it. What separates Buffy from the other Slayers in the past is her support system. Her watcher, Giles, her best friends, Willow and Xander, and her mother, Joyce. Joyce is a single mom who works at an art gallery that we absolutely never see and is not even a part of the plot at all. But she truly just wants the best for her daughter. So much so that when Buffy comes out to her as a vampire slayer, the allegory of coming out queer is so strong and results in Buffy running away from home. Honey, are you sure you're a vampire slayer? I, I mean, have you tried not being a slayer? Mom. It's because you didn't have a strong father figure, isn't it? It's just fate, Mom. I'm the slayer. Accepted. You don't get to just dump something like this on me and pretend it's nothing. I'm sorry, Mom, but I don't have time for this. No, I am tired of I don't have time or, or you wouldn't understand. I told you. I'm a vampire slayer. Well, I just don't accept that. Joyce eventually learns to accept Buffy's identity as they rebuild their relationship. And all is well in the summer's home. Until season five. While Buffy is battling Glory, a hell god who is arguably the strongest big bad she's faced yet, Joyce is battling a brain tumor. After a successful surgery, the Summers family believe that they're in the clear. But the episode that shook the fandom is called The Body, which critics have praised as not just one of the best Buffy episodes of all time, but one of the best episodes of TV of all time. There's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called The Body where she loses her mom. It's a very good episode, um, one of the best. It's crazy to me when people don't understand how good Sarah Michelle Gellar is on that show. Incredible. Um, so underrated. Or how good the just all of it, all of all of that show. And I think if it was, you know, not called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, more people would be talking about and familiar with with this episode in this moment. In the opening scene, which is all one take, Buffy discovers her mom dead on the couch of a brain aneurysm. Hey, flower getting lady. Want me to pick Dawn up from school? Mom? What are you doing? Mom? Mommy? Joss Whedon, creator and also the writer-director of this episode, says that he wanted to capture the isolation and boredom involved in the minutes and hours after finding out a loved one has died. What he termed the black ashes in your mouth numbness of death. Joss's mother also died of a cerebral aneurysm, so he drew on his own experiences. In the episode, Buffy and her friends, affectionately known as the Scoobies, struggle to understand what the loss of this maternal figure means to each of them. I think everybody in that episode, at some point, I, I can relate to something they're doing, like Xander punches a hole in the wall. And of course, I was very angry. I was so mad. You know, why? Why, why is this happening? Like, my mom was a good person. She did the Avon three-day, you know, breast cancer walk. She was so generous. Like, why her? What did, what did she do to deserve this? This is fucked up and stupid that moment, that that feeling in that first scene of just like everything's not real. It mm -hmm. kind of feels like it's like, it feels like a fantasy sequence almost. Like you're, you're physically in the room, but emotionally just God knows where. Each of the Scoobies embody a different stage of grief. Dawn, Buffy's younger sister, is in denial and capable of understanding that her mother is gone. Xander punches a wall out of anger, while Willow feels helpless trying to decide which outfit to wear to the funeral. Buffy tries bargaining what she could have done differently, and even though the doctor tells her there's nothing she could have done about it, she still keeps thinking about it. But perhaps one of the most touching moments of this episode come from Anya, 
a former vengeance demon new to humanity and the mortality that comes along with it. Are we going to see the body? What? Are we going to be in the room with the dead body? I don't know. Are they going to cut the body open? Oh, my God. Would you just stop talking? Just shut your mouth, please. What am I doing? How can you act like that? Am I supposed to be changing my clothes a lot? I mean, is that the helpful thing to do? Guys. The way you behave. Well, nobody will tell me. Because it's not OK for you to be asking these things. But I don't understand. I don't understand how this all happens, how we go through this. I mean, I knew her, and then she's, there's just a body. And I don't understand why she just can't get back in it and not be dead anymore. It's stupid. It's mortal and stupid. And, and Xander's crying and not talking. And, and I was having fruit punch. And I thought, well, Joyce will never have any more fruit punch ever. And she'll never have eggs or yawn or brush her hair. Not ever. And no one will explain to me why. But lastly, Tara, Willow's girlfriend and the most removed from the group, represents acceptance. She lost her own mother and is the only person Buffy really talks to about it, which allows Buffy to move towards accepting the loss. But they're at the hospital and everyone's kind of wandered off to like get snacks or go to the bathroom. And Buffy's sitting with um, this girl, Tara. She's her best friend's girlfriend. So they're not super close. But I, I sometimes it's easier to open up to a stranger. I felt like I would have like best friends that didn't know what it was like to uh, to lose a parent. And I, I couldn't really connect or talk to them. But then I'd get, you know, from the woodwork, just people on Facebook that I had never met in person or hadn't talked to in years reaching out. And I felt like it was so much easier to open up to, to somebody that way. They knew, they knew what I was going through. And so, Mm -hmm. um, so they kind of have that, a similar kind of moment. And Tara talks about losing her mom and Buffy asks, it was sudden. And Tara says, no. And yes, it's always sudden. And that is the perfect that that's the perfect encapsulation of the moment I walked in to the room after she had died because it wasn't sudden in so many ways. Like I was home because she was in hospice. I was, you know, she was first diagnosed with cancer almost a decade ago. Eventually you kind of realize like, I don't know when, but cancer is what's going to, you know, take my mom. She maybe she'll beat this round, but eventually, like, this is probably what's going to happen, whether it's in 20 years or, you know, whether she goes into remission or not. It's always kind of felt like eventually it will come back in a way that she won't be. I didn't think it'd be when she was in her 60s. I thought like she'd have like a 20 year remission or something. So the idea of it's always sudden is like, yeah, you know, you're you can't prepare for it. You think you're mentally prepared for it. And then you walk in the room and it's just like, there's no way. The death of Joyce Summers hits Buffy and her friends, unlike anything else, because of the absence of supernatural causes. Critic Alicia Redding writes, a fantasy show delivers the most stark and realistic take on death I've ever seen. Deftly depicting how a loved one who dies suddenly becomes the body. It's true. On a show that combines fantasy and sci-fi, this was the first death by natural causes, one that couldn't be brought back by a spell. One that couldn't be brought back by a spell. Well, younger sister Dawn did try in the preceding episode forever, which will be included on an extended pop culture segment on the Patreon, but cannot get into it right now. 
five seasons of supernatural stuff and, you know, vampires and masters and demons made by the government. Mm -hmm. And this was the first time where it was like, oh, this is just life. Like Xander says, like things don't just happen. Um, And so I relate to that and the anger of like, yeah, this there's there's no reason for this. And that's Mm -hmm. that's infuriating. You can live a life and be a person who can take on anything and everything, but not when you lose your mom. Death and grief are huge motifs in the series for seasons five and six. And Joyce's death played a very large role in the season five finale when Buffy, smiling as she's running off of a giant cliff-like ladder, sacrifices her own life to save the world. She just wants to be back with her mom. We were at the funeral home. It was the first day of the viewing, and and it was also my mom's birthday. And I got a phone call that I was a potential bone marrow match um, because I'm in like the be the match like bone marrow donor registry, and uh, they wanted to know if I'd be interested in you know pursuing this and being a bone marrow donor. And I thought that there was definitely something interesting in this phone call happening on my mom's birthday while I'm at the funeral home. And so I said, yes. And then I went in and I went through all the tests and the process and I was matched. So I was going to, I didn't have to give this guy bone marrow. It was going to be stem cells instead, which I thought was scarier because instead of like an operation where they take bone marrow out of you while you're like asleep and then you just hurt for two weeks after you have to sit there for seven hours with a needle in each arm one taking blood out, spinning it around, getting the stem cells out, the other putting it back in. Uh, but don't worry, because they do provide you with Xanax. So I did that. And basically what I found out through this process, there was a man somewhere that had some sort of disorder with his immune system, which made him like 90% more susceptible to blood cancers and blood diseases and stuff like that. So what they're going to do was put him through chemo, shut down his immune system completely, then give him my stem cells, which would um, go into his bones and he would start making my blood. And that's what was really fascinating to like the woman who was kind of taking me through this. She's like, it's just, you know, it's a really cool process because this guy will change blood types. He's no longer making his own blood. He's making your blood. Then I realized, well, if he's making my blood, he's making my mom's blood. I've never found out what happened to him. Um, I've talked about it a lot in therapy about how, you know, I'll always say like, I don't want to know what happened to him. That was a really kind of special moment for me. And I told them after I was leaving with my bandaged arms and goodie bag that, you know, I lost my mom a few months ago and to think of like her blood helping this man. And so, yeah, I talked about it in therapy about, you know, where is he now? And I don't, she asked me if I think about it and I said, I, I don't want to know because if it's anything but we saved his life, like the last thing you want to hear is this beautiful like, oh, we shared this blood and then to find out it didn't work or something. So she would always have to remind me that that's not why like you did the act, the act of doing this is how is how your mom's living on. Like I put a lot into the physical going back to Buffy and vampires. Mm -hmm. I put a lot into like the blood thing of like this man is living because of my mom's blood. But really it's not that it's I'm doing things like this because my mom, 
shaped me to be this human being to do stuff like that. So. So it's been now two, two and a half. Yes, years. two and a half. You started the Groundling Sunny Company, mm-hmm. which takes up so much of your time. And so right. like in some way, I'm sure that was like a major distraction. It was. I mean, I don't have a ton of good things to say about their program or my time in Sunday Company, but it was definitely, I can't imagine coming back and not having had something that took up 24 hours of every day for six months. It was just a such a commitment. And so, you know, other opinions aside, I'm super grateful that I had something to just dive into like that. And then when that was over, it actually worked out okay. My dad and sister were in town when I got cut and I was like on the phone they were telling me I was like okay cool like are, are, is this conversation done because my I'm outside of Denny's I'd like to go back inside and see my dad and sister and <laughs> order a grand slam please so yeah it was it I mean I don't know I don't know what it would have been like to come back and not have something taking up so much time but it was also it was so intense and so difficult that sometimes that was tough for one thing, this was a huge thing that I had, you know, worked really hard for. And my mom knew I was in that I got into Sunday Company because I they voted me in in May, but there wasn't like a cast change. So I didn't join till October. So she was around when they voted me in and she'd always ask, when are you starting at the Groundlings? When are you starting at the Groundlings? So that was another reason why I felt like I needed to just dive in and do it mm. as opposed to put it off and, and do it another day. And, and yeah, going and having opening shows and closing night and everybody else in the cast being like, oh, my mom's in town from Indiana and parents are coming to visit and stuff like that. And, you know, not having my mom at any of the openings or closings was hard. But then again, I will always feel bad that I go on so like how many times I'll post about how I miss my mom on Facebook and be like, oh, I got to call dad like because <laughs> he did come out. He and my sister and my brother all came out to see me in Sunday company shows. So I don't want them to feel like I don't appreciate that. But, you know, they're not mom. And do you feel like it has changed the way that you approach comedy or what's funny? Yeah, sometimes find myself making really dark jokes. It almost feels like something like a club I'm in or something I own, something I get to do, like this really morbid like parting package. Like, well, you lost your mom, but you get two things, a guardian angel and the ability to make other people comfortable about the fact you lost your mom. So um, I had a friend who did Sunday Company who had lost his dad and we would make jokes texting like um, he would send a text. It was like, sorry, running late, dead dad. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so, yeah, there are times when it's just kind of like, you know what? I lost my mom and this sucks. So if all I can get from this is the opportunity to make this stranger feel weird about a question they asked, I guess I'll take it. What do you feel like has helped writing? I started journaling uh, like right when I went home. 
October 2016, I started writing. I try to do every day, and I think that that's really helped because you just need a place to kind of organize thoughts and put them together and, and process and stuff like that. I still try to keep it going today. Sometimes it's less of like a losing your mom journal and more of just a this audition today was so stupid. But I just, you know, try to keep writing. And also a lot of times I like to write down when like random things will hit me or like random memories. Like if I'm at a store and I, I see um, like this type of orange bubble gum that I would always get. And then I remember going to the grocery store with my mom and, you know, that being the treat. And I like to write those down because I, I'm not making new ones. So it's important to really do what I can to preserve the ones that I do have, even something as dumb as, you know, bubble gum or something like that. So that's, that's helped a lot. Going through the journal she was writing um, helps because for my first, for the first few years, probably up until I was like five or six, uh, she kept a journal of all of the kids and all the weird stuff we got into and that has helped because I never saw her as funny or as a writer, but then I go back and read these and it's so deadpan and it's so dry and sarcastic. It's like, oh, like all these years, I was the funny one in the family. And people are like, where'd you get your sense of humor from? It was like, I don't know, one of my grandpas, they were both funny. I'd always joke that it skips a generation and turns out my mom was low key funny. And all of her friends were like, oh, she was always so funny, but we never saw it. We were too busy you know, demanding our Halloween costumes and <laughs> to be picked up from work. I feel lucky in a way being so far and so wrapped up in this show business because it's easier, I think, for me to go a day or two and, and focus on other things and other distractions. I mean, as you know, it's kind of like being in L.A. It's like you have sometimes it feels less like a life and more of like a very long business trip. And so it's easy. But then. My sister doesn't really have that benefit. She still lives at home where my mom lived, where my dad still lives. My brother has two kids. So like every day he's just looking at her grandkids and every single thing they do. It's a reminder of like, you know, she she doesn't get to see them grow up. And my one nephew, we call him Lego. He's just the littlest weirdo. And he reminds me so much of like just the little goofball I was when I was little and not being able to like, get texts from my mom that's like, he's so much like you. So when I'm home and I'm in the house and I see the things that she made for me when I was a kid, uh, Christmas was a big time. So putting up the Christmas tree and stuff like that. Um, sometimes I feel bad that I'm so far away and kind of easy or to go through a day without feeling any sort of loss or grief. But then I go home and I'm in like my house where I grew up for an hour and I just feel like oh no I was just avoiding it like it's been waiting here for me I was just you know my brother and sister deal it with it daily I let it all build up and then a couple times a year just go back home and, and cash it all in knowing that um, whenever something good happens like when I do win that Emmy or book that whatever or something like that like it's it's tough knowing that there's always that every happy thing will be bittersweet. Like there's there every joyous occasion of my life will have like this shadow, will have this piece missing, and just you know that's something that never goes away. You just continue to have to deal with it. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you want to find out more about Steve, you can follow him on Twitter at Steve Slaga. That's Steve, S-Z-L-A-G-A, Steve Slaga. Also, as a fun crossover, I was on the latest episode of his podcast called Why Do You Know That, where I talk about basically my dissertation about the queerness of Buffy. It's available on Apple Podcasts. I'm posting a few little extras on the Patreon at patreon.com slash deadmomcast, like the videos from the Buffy pop culture segment and a few extras from this episode as well. I'm Brittany Ashley. You can follow me at Brit27Ash, that's B-R-I-T-T-27-A-S-H, on Twitter and Instagram, or you can go to BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. <laughs>